Hey Church of the Valley, my name is Malik Campbell and many of you know me as a worship director here at Church of the Valley. Uh, some of you have known me as a longtime friend or even at this point, I'm basically your family. Uh, and some of you don't know me at all or know very much about me apart from knowing that I do, like, do the music here at Church. People say that sometimes. Today, I hope that you'll get to know me a little better, but more importantly, I hope that you'll come to know Jesus more through the teaching of the Word. We will, of course, have scripture today, so please stay seated, and I'm going to read from Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, and then pray for us afterwards. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now working those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God, I just thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to open up your word and be able to teach, God. I just pray that you would speak in and through me and say exactly what you want me to say, Lord, but I pray more that you would hear what you have to hear today and that the word would penetrate our hearts. I just pray that you would bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to be sharing a big part of my testimony. Yes, I'm going to be testifying to the victory that I have in Christ. This story has a good outcome, which is why I'm standing in front of you today. But today I really want to focus on the fact that I am at peace. Yes, I'm truly at peace. Truly at peace, which is what so many people are looking for in life. But it wasn't always this way. Until I was 19 years old, I wasn't a believer. Sure, I believed in God, said the prayer, believed that God was the one who could protect me or who I could go to when I was scared, especially. I, was, I used to be very fearful. And I went to church once in a blue moon with my family. Whether, or ignorance, whether by ignorance or not, I didn't truly know the God that I believed in. I know now that even though I was baptized as a baby, it couldn't have been a true profession of faith. Even being raised on Bible stories and taught about God, the God of the Bible, I didn't know who Jesus was, nor did I believe in him. Knowing what I know now, I was not a believer. Not only in those 19 years did I come to realize that I did not truly believe, I also realized early on that I had a tendency to do things that I shouldn't do and not, and not do things that I should do. Not just that, because that still happens, if we're honest, but more so, I was spiritually dead. Paul speaks about this in Ephesians 2, so we'll take a look. But first, let me give you some context. Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, a major... 
chapter of Ephesians, Paul focuses on the spiritual blessings in Christ available to believers, such as being chosen or being elected, adoption to sonship through Jesus, redemption, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. He emphasizes God's initiative in salvation and relationship with, with, with them, and how all glory is due to God as a result of this. Then at the beginning of chapter two, Paul shifts the focus to the condition of the believers before they came to faith in Christ. The phrase, as for you, serves as a bridge between the blessings discussed in chapter one and the state of the Ephesians and all believers by extension before experiencing God's saving grace. He proceeds to describe their former state of spiritual death due to their transgressions and sins, and then contrasting it with the new life they have received through faith in Christ. Now, it's worth noting why Paul uses the word dead. How could they have been dead? When the Ephesians he was writing to were likely very much still alive. By saying they were dead in their transgressions and sins, he's alluding to their former state of spiritual death before life in Christ. Transgressions or trespass, meaning crossing a line or breaching boundaries, in this case against God. Sin, meaning missing the mark, failure to keep God's commandments or obey him. If I'm physically dead, what can I do? I can't do anything. Similarly, if I'm spiritually dead, I can't save myself or try really hard to will myself out of my sin, which is a problem, and I can't save myself from my transgressions against God. This kind of language is used elsewhere in Scripture, just to use another example. Uh, blindness. How could someone be able to see what's right in front of them, like I can see you guys, but be called spiritually blind? Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, where he writes, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God, lowercase g, of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they, that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We all have the propensity or the natural tendency to sin, and the enemy is working to blind us from Christ and guide us into this death. Paul speaks on this further in Ephesians 2 verse 2 where he says, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He's pointing out that they used to follow the ways of the world and that Satan, lowercase s spirit, kingdom of the air, or yeah, kingdom of the air is at work of, in the disobedient or the unbelievers who are in active rebellion against God. We all have the propensity to sin, like I said. If you're still not convinced that humans have the propensity or the natural inclination to sin, and that before Christ only comes death, let me take you back in time 23 years ago. It was a random evening in San Jose, in a San Jose apartment building on Park Avenue, where I heard my mom come into the bathroom shocked. She took something out of my three-year-old hand and proceeded to instruct me never to do that again. What had I just done? I had taken the number one guard from the Clippers, not James Harden, by the way, and proceeded to run it along my head and give myself a haircut while sitting on the bathroom floor. 
Now at this point in time, my hair was so fine that it indeed did come off of my head. I remember looking at it, curious as to what I had just done, feeling how soft it felt in my hand. And that was my first memorable realization that I, had did, that I did something I shouldn't have done. But keep in mind, it wasn't until my mom told me not to do that that I had this realization. Now, this wasn't my mom's fault. It's not the end of, of the world if a little kid cuts their hair with something that wasn't even sharp. But more so, in my story, it reflects the reality of our human tendency and sin problem. Through the boundary being set, I had become conscious of my wrongdoing. Now, if you're, thinking, if you're still thinking, Malik, that's harmless. You were just a kid. Keep listening. When I was probably four or four and a half, five years old, I had another memorable instance. I had found a lingerie catalog in the house and decided to open it up. I remember being astonished by what I saw, like I had stumbled across some kind of treasure. <laughs> Perhaps I was just curious, or maybe it was the knowledge that I had gathered that people, especially women, cover up certain areas. Nonetheless, I proceeded to look around me, pretend like I was going to the bathroom, and spend the next what seemed like an hour and a half just flipping through this magazine. Then suddenly, boom, 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 a knock on the door. Malik, what are you doing in there? I'm using the toilet, Dad. Hmm, you've been in there for a long time. Open up the door. I proceeded to open up the door and revealed what I had been doing. Now, I thought I would be in trouble, but the response I received was gracious and loving. And honestly, at the time, I think it was the, mo it was the best response my father could have possibly given me. As he walked me through what certain feelings or curiosities might be, but my testimony's not about the birds and the bees talk, which was way more awkward. <laughs> but I want you to realize something about what I just shared. Number one, I hid when I found knowledge of something, and I thought it would be profitable. Number two, I lied about what I was doing when I got caught. And I knew my dad probably already knew what I was up to or had a suspicion. Adam and Eve, anyone? Little did I know I would be a slave to this sin pattern for much of my life. Let's go back to Ephesians 2, verse 3, where Paul writes, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Who is Paul talking about when he says all of us? Well, of course he's writing to the Ephesians, but this also applies to you. And it certainly applies to me. Don't get it twisted. Just because I'm up here talking on a platform doesn't mean I'm special or I didn't go through this. Look in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, where Paul also writes, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, to be sure, Sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. And clearly, death continues to reign in those who are ruled by sin even today. Now, remember in Ephesians 2, where Paul's talking to believers? Well, he's using the past tense. 
I'm not trying to be the bearer of bad news today. The good news is already poking through just from the context of the scripture. I, we, don't have to stay there dead in our sins. Paul says, all of us lived among them at one time. But what he's trying to convey here is that Paul himself and the believers in Ephesus used to be like them, those who are living in sin and gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. To gratify in this case means to indulge, to carry out, to make a thing out of something, which is kind of interesting as I, as I was preparing my sermon. I found it interesting that it's not just craving the feelings or to feel cravings, but to make something out of them and to carry out the desires of our flesh. It's not just doing these things one time that's so detrimental to our eternity, because let's face it, even those of us in Christ sin all the time. What's tragic is being spiritually dead and not knowing, believing in or wanting the way out that Jesus provides. I encourage you all to think about, if you're a believer, how did you previously gratify the cravings of the flesh? Was it something specific that you did? Was it self-justification? Was it putting your identity and status in morality or placing ourselves on a high horse because it seemed like our morals were better than other people's? If you are yet to believe or are seeking, how do you currently follow the desires and the thoughts of your flesh right now? For me, that was lust. To put it even more out there, sexual sin. To be even more transparent, I'll share with you more of my testimony. When I was eight or nine years old, I was exposed to internet pornography for the first time by typing in a website the wrong way. At first, I closed it out. I knew I had just seen something abysmal, something I shouldn't have seen. I told my sister, and she promptly helped me and to close it out and told me, that, told me to never visit that site again. Yet my curiosity, or rather sinful desire, my natural inclination to sin, led me back to that site over and over again. Little did I know that this trap was designed to ensnare me for life, and that from that moment on, I would struggle with pornography addiction even into my 20s. Such is the nature of sin. It reels you in and is meant to keep you enslaved to it for life. When I was a freshman in high school, my parents divorced, and I had become the man of the house. All I remember from that time period is I had to grow up real quick. I really missed my dad, and I was depressed and angry because we had to move at terrible times. We actually moved across the street from our house, and then in, the, in a span of two weeks, we moved to another place, all while I was starting high school. This depression and anger would fuel me into high school, where I developed an F-it-all mentality. You can fill in the blanks. Searching for anything to keep me grounded or occupied. And I praise God for my little brother every day because the responsibility of having to take care of him kept me coming home and staying out of trouble. This affected me day in and day out. First in ways I probably didn't really notice as the pathways in my brain were changing, maybe to crave, crave dopamine or to be sad all the time, but that's kind of besides the point. It probably affected my decisions and my habits, especially academically. It affected my relationships, and by the time I was in high school, I was pretty much a mess. Hanging with the wrong crowd because all my friends had come from the same school and they were the wrong crowd, so I just, I was hanging out with them. 
making stupid decisions, putting on a persona that honestly wasn't as much trying to fit in, like I didn't care about fitting in as much as it was gratifying the cravings of the flesh and trying to fill a void um, with them. At that point, I had lost my football friends in my sophomore year due to an injury, tore my ACL. And I had a different girlfriend at the time that wanted nothing to do with me because I was toxic and I could no longer get what I wanted from her. The only thing holding me up at that point was banned video games, and, a th and thousands more hours wasted on explicit adult websites. I knew that I couldn't keep going this way. I have notes in my phone from 2014 telling myself that I would change, yet nothing changed. Well, maybe that's what happens when you're a lost 16 to 17 year old being forced to read Rolf Waldo Emerson's transcend transcendentalism literature and coming to believe that humans are inherently good and that individualism and self will get you through. Like, I couldn't have been more wrong. Those beliefs couldn't have been more wrong and further from the truth. All they did was reinforce the belief I had that everything was okay. I believe in God. All I have to do is be a good person to get to heaven. <laughs> I couldn't have been more wrong. Thankfully, I started, to think, I started thinking about those contradicting thoughts. Like, if I'm a good person, why am I doing this, this thing? Or why am I doing these things? And that led me to question them. How could I be good if I'm like this? How could I believe in the true God if my family members can't even agree on if they're Christian or Catholic when they don't even attend church? These are some of the same questions that I asked my dear friend, Tim, when I met him in my junior year at some outreach he was doing from the Christian club at my high school. I was invited by a friend of mine named Rebecca Wang, not my Becca, but Rebecca Wang, and I asked, him some, I asked him some questions about where do babies go when they die? And where am I going based on what my parents believe? I forgot what he said at the time, honestly, but <laughs> we chatted. And he sent, we added each other on Facebook, and he sent me some links about Jesus, and I ignored them. <laughs> but I continued to live for my flesh. <laughs> Little did I know, God would use these instances to draw me to himself later on. Going back to the rest of Ephesians 2, in verse 3, Paul writes, Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. It tracks that if we're following the ways of the world and want nothing to do with God, who is holy, mighty, perfect, and omniscient, we deserve whatever wrath is coming to us. Remember, those of us in Christ all lived among them at one point. If you don't like it coming from me, or you don't believe me, let's look at how Jesus challenges the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, on who they belong to and how they are using their genealogy to claim that God is their father. John chapter 8, verses 42 to 47. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say? You belong to your father, the devil, and want, not, and want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? 
Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Thank you, Jesus, for saying that. It's about who we belong to. That was kind of a lot. <laughs> I told you, though, there's a good outcome to all of this. So let's look back in our passage for today, Ephesians 2, verse 4, where Paul writes, But because of his great love for us, for, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy. Oh yeah, this is going to be good. You know that whenever there's a big but or but God in Scripture, that it's going to be good. And indeed it is. Verse 5, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in, our tra in, in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. <sighs> that is good news. That is really, really good news. God doesn't love us because we are so lovable by nature. No way. I just spent a bunch of time explaining why we aren't and personally how I'm not. On the contrary, God's love is so great that he extends it even to those who are unlovely and dang near unlovable. Can you, did you just think of someone? He is rich in mercy or compassion and kindness, especially to the afflicted. Well, to all and the afflicted. It's important to understand that in our own efforts, there's nothing we can do to clean ourselves up, become more lovable, or earn his mercy. Paul doesn't say that God loves us because, because Paul doesn't say that God loves our spiritual deadness. Paul is saying that God makes us alive in Christ because he loved us even when we were spiritually dead. He makes dead things alive through his son. In the fall of 2015, I started college, finding myself at my lowest point. I was conflicted about my major, was laughed at for wanting to pursue music, and struggled with advisors from the get-go. As a matter of fact, they placed me in classes that put me a year behind from my first semester. Yeah. My struggle with sexual sin had become worse, and I was distracting myself with YouTube and video games, still uh, the same way as high school. But I was starting to become heartbroken over my sin. Ridden with guilt, I remember sitting alone in my car one night, just straight up crying because I felt so worthless, hopeless, and disgusting. It was during these exact low moments that God began drawing me to himself. I believe, in fact, that he had been setting all these things up throughout my whole life to do so. To the argument that some use where they say people only come to God because their life is hard or through a hardship, well, one, there are many of you here today at Church of the Valley who came to follow Jesus maybe at a young age or without some memorable hard thing you went through. Sure, it could have happened after, but that's amazing, right? And two, that's how God operates. He meets us where we're at while we're dead in our sins and doesn't leave us there. He makes us alive in him. Coming to Christ through hardship is not a trauma bond. It's God being faithful to show us the way out in the midst of our trauma. From that point on, God orchestrated events in my life using significant people like my Rebecca, my high, my high school sweetheart, who was in band with me, to guide me toward him. 
A dream I had one night sparked a deep yearning to know Jesus. I don't know where it came from, but I was convinced to attend Rebecca's church where I could hear more about Jesus. And at her church, I was deeply convicted of my sins and the beauty of our Savior. It's a revelation song. Woo! (laughs) This happened early in my sophomore year of college, and following that, I reached out to the same old friend who invited me to the Christian club meeting at my school many years prior. Rebecca Wang, solely because I knew she was a Christian. That's pretty encouraging because I knew she looked different, and I asked her. So we look different, Christians. But it appears that God likes to use Rebecca's in my life to make a difference. (laughs) She praised God and told me that I should tell my dad, who also affirmed what I was experiencing. And, you know, I don't really know exactly where my dad's at, but he told me that there's nothing wrong with having faith. That was the green light for me. Rebecca Wang also encouraged me to find a college ministry. Praise God. (laughs) Because one day, one random day when I was walking on campus, I came across a table on club day. That table was Pulse College Ministry, where I found out three years after meeting him initially that this Tim Riley guy would be speaking. (laughs) Also, shout out Eugene, because he was at the table too. Eugene Chu. (laughs) Upon hearing this, all I said was, no way. Because, not because I would be meeting Tim again, but because it was dang near impossible for all those events to happen without God intervening. I attended that Thursday and decided, based on what seemed like God was undeniably drawing me to himself that Thursday night, to follow Christ, even if I didn't know much about him. At this point, I didn't even know about the resurrection and what that meant. I began to meet with people and attended services, and I began to hear more about the hope we have in Christ, and I could believe it. How eternal life is found in him, and most importantly, if the resurrection happened, everything is true. Even the things that are harder to understand in Scripture are true. By faith gifted to me, I believed. I always chuckle when people say that they don't have an interesting testimony because the testimony is not just how I was able to quit porn, which I have, by the way, and feel free to ask me how, or how I stopped doing something bad. Those are just byproducts of following Christ. A testimony is about testifying to how God brought you from death, from, from sin, to death, and then to life in Christ. We were dead in our sins, and God brought us into life with Christ. God made us alive with his son. Through sending his son to live a perfect life, die a horrible death on the cross, taking the sin and shame of all mankind upon himself, and and rose him up from the dead on the third day, defeating all sin and death, and freeing us from being slaves to sin if we believe in him. He sent the Holy Spirit as a seal and a guarantee to reside in us and to testify about Jesus when our flesh wants only to do the opposite. By grace we have been saved. This was a gift of God that we don't deserve. How much more does the fact that we don't deserve it amplify how great God's love is for us? Remember my Becca? When I first believed back in 2016, I was convicted to confess my sins to her. Honestly, a lot of that which affected her in secret. 
Instead of meeting me with anger or leaving me or leaving me, she responded with grace and forgave me. She felt for me. She had empathy for me. That's when it clicked. How could someone I have sinned against forgive me so freely? That's when I was brought to tears by what God had revealed to me soon after. And I don't know, if, I don't think this is a slide, but I wish it was. So hear, hear this. If a person can extend grace or forgiveness to me in this life, how much greater, true, lacking of self and meaningful for eternity and the pardoning of sin is the forgiveness and mercy that God has on me? It's infinitely greater. And it doesn't end there. Paul continues on in Ephesians 2 by writing in verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated, him in the, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now, obviously we're not sitting, physically sitting with Jesus right now or in the heavenly realm. But what Paul is pointing out to you is the glorious reality that believers are not only forgiven and saved, but also elevated to a position of honor and privilege in Christ. Now, in Christ, we place our identity in him and become children of God. God did this in order that in the coming ages, and Paul wasn't just talking about at that point in time, he expected the same gospel to continue to be, to be preached throughout the ages. He might show, God might show, notice there's no we in this, God is doing the work, the in incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God's grace expressed in his kindness through Christ. Paul goes on to paint a crystal clear picture in verse 8 that this grace, this salvation, our faith has nothing to do with our own works. Amen. He writes in verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Those who believe in Christ are saved from being slaves to sin, saved from being bound to death and eternal separation from God. We are able to believe that because God gifts us faith to believe it all while we were still sinners. These two verses make it impossible for someone to argue that they can earn their justification or come to faith on their own. I really resonate with this because there was no possible way that I could have pulled myself out of the hole I created with solely my willpower or worldly methods. Even if I did, for example, improve myself, because, you know, everybody's about self-improvement these days, it would still be a facade. And without faith in Christ, I'd still be in the same camp of those who are in rebellion against God. Uh, one thing that really perplexed me after I started to believe and follow Christ was, now that I'm saved, what does it mean if I still sin? How do you navigate this? Am I free from sexual sin? Well, yes. I'm no longer a slave to any sin because I belong to God and no one can pluck me out of his hand. He doesn't take back his gift. 
but I'm not free from it exactly like I'd like to be because sin is still in this world. Jesus hasn't come back yet, and I'm not with him in heaven. And at the end of 2016, I believed, but in 2017 and 2018, my life only seemed to get way harder. I failed all my college classes due to severe depression, thinking ending it all might be the best solution. I spent seven years in college wondering if I had made the right, made the right decision to continue while many of my peers went on to graduate and get good jobs and all of the sorts. I struggled to change majors. I went from undeclared to trying to be in computer science, which I couldn't even though I was .01 away from the GPA requirement. And then I went to math where I failed, even though I liked it. I struggled to change majors and spent countless nights in the uh, Martin Luther King Library where this, the silence is haunting. It's, it's, it's deafening, like it was bad. Um, thankfully, God continues to provide grace when necessary. And he doesn't just run out of it. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. The Lord has as much grace as the whole universe will require, but he has vastly more. He overflows. All the demands that can ever be made on the grace of God will never impoverish him or even diminish his store of mercy. Hallelujah. Now, should we take this as an excuse to have a sin free-for-all? I mean, obviously, no. Maybe it's not that obvious. And if you interpret God's grace as such, you probably don't understand the magnitude of what it means that his grace is the gift that frees us from sin in the first place. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We therefore, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The, great, the increase of grace should not produce carelessness in believers. It should produce reverence for our Lord. Now, the difference salvation by grace through faith in Christ makes, because there is a difference, is not that I don't sin anymore. It's that I'm not dead in my sins. It's repentance. Having been going one direction and turning 180 degrees from the old way and following the way, Jesus. It's that where I used to blindly follow the ways of the world, I now have a desire to follow Christ and obey him. Where sin seems good, I know because of what the world tells me and what I believe, what the word tells me and what I believe, that Jesus is better. Where I would follow the thoughts and desires of my flesh, I can now confess my sins to God and repent and look at him. Look to the word. Where I used to make it about myself and justify myself, I'm a good person. Where I used to do that, I know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Even going back to, back to 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, and we're in the Testify series, but I have found it so relatable. 
Any way that my heart condemns me, God is greater than my heart. The lies are countered with truth, and he knows me entirely. Where I fall short, Jesus is better and steps in. He intercedes on our behalf. We are works in progress, and an easy journey isn't what's promised in Scripture. A good, trustworthy, and faithful God is who is promised in Scripture. As we obey, we become more spiritually mature. One of my favorite passages for sanctification is is Ephesians 4, verses 14 through 16, where Paul speaks on the body of Christ, the church, maturity, unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son, Jesus, and growing more into his likeness. Paul writes, Ephesians 4, verses 14 through 16, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and, crafti- cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every aspect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. When you first believe, you might be a baby, not knowing much about Christ and flailing through life. Like, this is what it feels like. You're just flailing through life, but you still believe you're a baby. The good news is through the foundation that the resurrection is, equipping through the word and with Christ-centered community, in Christ-centered community, we mature into the likeness of Christ. The result of God's saving grace and growth into the likeness of Christ is that of Ephesians 2, verses, verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Not only are we created in God's image, but we are new creations in Christ that can obey him. We can obey him at his word, And he had prepared this for us in his perfect plan and will. Now, this maturity and consistent process of sanctification became most apparent to me during during the worst of my college journey. God taught me that I was secure in him and that I was on his timeline. I no longer felt the pressure to get out of school so quickly or regret decisions I had made that kept me in school longer. Knowing that I'm secure in Christ took me from a hopeless college student to one who knew that God has got me in his hand. This became most apparent in 2019 when I moved with my family into a cramped house the same day that I had to share the news with my mom that my grandpa had died. In this house, I shared a small bedroom with my sister that we spent the entirety of COVID in until we finally moved in 2022. And now... Like, I wish I had an illustration, or the, I couldn't find the picture, but I took a picture, and the room was so small. And if anyone knows what it's like to share a room with an adult sister, like, please come talk to me, because I want to know, know your experience. <laughs> Nonetheless, it was quite, God used that, God used that experience to sanctify me. Recently, my cousin, more like my brother, I spent a lot, a lot of time with and grew up with, passed away around this time, of, around this time last year at the age of 33. Um, 
to this day, I still struggle with seasonal depression, but I know that it'll pass because God has carried me through it before. Some people have asked me, Malik, how do you stay so calm? How are you so chill? How do you not worry? How can you be good after just losing a loved one? And the reason, the reason has nothing to do with me. The answer is that through all of these things, while I'm not perfect, God has continued to cement in me what he has been teaching me all along, that I am at peace with God. I am at peace with God. I'm at peace with God because he saved me when I was dead in my sins and made me a new creation. Regardless of what happens now, I am secure in him because my identity is in Christ and I can't do anything to revoke God's gift of grace. I am at peace with God because of Jesus. I want to end with this reassurance that has stuck with me since I started to believe. And I always go back to thinking about John chapter 10, verse 27 through 30. My sheep listen to my, Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Praise God. Praise God that he can bring a sinner like me from chaos and death to peace and life. Praise God that he has done the same for those of you who believe and can do the same for those who are seeking or yet to believe. Let's pray. Dear God, I just thank you so much for the opportunity again to preach, Lord. God, I ask that if people are seeking, Lord, that you would meet them right where they're at today. And for those of us who believe, God, that you would just continue to remind us and cement in us who you are and that we are no longer dead in our sins but are able to be alive in you. Thank you that you come to save sinners and that because of you we have a new life. We are able to be new creations, God. We just pray that you would get all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.